Oh, God bless. Hi, welcome. If you're accustomed to seeing uh, both Dennis and me co-hosting, um, Dennis could not be with us today. And so I am uh, flying solo and happy to uh, be welcoming today's guest the Reverend Dr. Margaret Bullitt Jonas is an Episcopal priest, author, retreat leader, and climate activist. She's been a lead organizer of many Christian and interfaith events about care for the earth. And she leads spiritual retreats on spiritual resilience and resistance in the midst of the climate emergency, which is the primary reason we wanted her on the show. She's the co-editor of the book, Rooted and Rising, Voices of Courage in a Time of Climate Crisis. And she currently serves as the Missioner for Creation Care in, and holds other positions in the Episcopal Diocese of Western Massachusetts. Uh, and um, we don't wanna to continue too long with introductions. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Phil, it's good to be here. Great to have you with us. Um, why don't we begin by telling our listeners, by you telling our listeners and viewers, uh, something about your spiritual history. What brought you to your commitment to the church and to your ministry in the first place? Sure. Uh, it's a, actually a very personal story. I. Uh, developed an eating disorder when I was a teenager and uh, all through my young adulthood, uh, eating compulsively and then running and exercising and fasting and like that. And finally got into recovery uh, when I was 30 years old, I through the 12 step program that complete surrender to a higher power. And I will say I had grown up in the Episcopal church. I had fled the church uh, in college and had wanted nothing to do with church, religion, God, faith. But that personal crisis uh, meant I, I had to turn my life over. I, I couldn't run my life on ego anymore. It was totally not working. So I surrendered my life to God as I understood God and began a journey of healing of body, mind, spirit coming into alignment. And I was so amazed by the power of God, this, this mysterious presence we name God, uh, that I finished what I was doing. I was actually at Harvard getting a, a doctorate in Russian and comparative literature. I, I finished my PhD. That's why I have a doctor in my name. Finished my PhD and went straight to seminary. Who is the God that just saved my life? Uh, and it I was ordained in the Episcopal Church in June of 1988, and it turned out to be the same month that Nassau climate scientist Jim Hansen was testifying to Congress about what at that point they were calling the greenhouse effect. He was testifying about what we now call climate change. Uh, the, he was expressing, I think it was the first time the American public really knew that scientists were alarmed about the effects of burning coal, gas, and oil, and what it was doing to the planet's uh, climate. And so it was the same month I was ordained, and somehow that just got placed on my heart. And as 
the days went by, eventually the, the question I began to hold was, if God can heal one crazy addict like me and help her live in right relationship with her body, is it not possible that God can also empower humanity to live in right relationship with the body of earth? Uh, I love it that this show is called Spirit Matters because that really has been an essential uh, piece of my own, my own journey. <laughs> Were you raised in the Episcopal Church, or did you choose that denomination for your ordination for some reason? I, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, but the way I understood Christianity, and you know, this is like back in the 50s and 60s. The way I learned Christianity was spirit and matter are completely separate. I, I will just quickly say I do I see this as a complete distortion of authentic Christianity, but it was it was what I kind of took in. Um, a good Christian had nothing to do with the body. A good Christian tried to transcend the body and get away from the body. And you don't want to deal with sex. You don't want to deal with suffering. You don't want to deal with death. You want to sort of rise above and. It's like, no wonder I, I ended up having an eating disorder. I, I was so confused uh, about what it means to be incarnate. And I choose that word because it's, it's a, a central word for Christians to yeah. speak of the incarnation of the divine becoming fully human and the divine actually infusing all of reality. Uh, so that's that's been my my personal healing journey and, and it's a journey that I, I hope humanity will be taking as well because we are not living in right relationship with the earth. I I did not know that your doctorate was in um, Russian uh, comparative literature. So that makes me ask this question. The Russian literature I'm familiar with is pretty dark. Um, did any of that, and, and you know, you're obviously have read more than English translations of Dostoevsky and uh, that sort of thing, but did any of your training in literature and especially uh, Russian literature did that enter in in any way to your uh, theology, to your understanding of, of, of the spirit and the inner life? Yes. You know, in those years, I wanted nothing to do, as I said, I wanted nothing to do with church, but, he, but actually I was studying and exposing myself to these, these very deep spiritual writers who they were writing fiction uh, that people like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, you know, the sort of two biggies that we always think of from the 19th century, they were very interested in exploring spiritual questions. And so I, my spiritual journey sort of secretly was taking, was unfolding. Um, and it's, it's been my life today. I have, I, I don't speak Russian anymore. My life has really changed, but I've, I've taken in, um, some of the writings really, I sort of took into my into my bones. And um, you know, you mentioned rooted and rising. Um, this uh, anthology of essays I recently co-edited about living into the climate crisis with faith and courage and so on. Um, the chapter I wrote for 
that book, um, I ended up calling Love Every Leaf. And I based, the chapter was, was thinking about that, that amazing scene in the Brothers Karamazov where the dying monk is telling one of the brothers, Karamazov, what life's about, what, what really matters. And one of this sort of beautiful riffs he does is to understand God, you need to fall in love with everything. You need to love everything, love people even in their sin, love every grain of sand, love every leaf. And that, that invitation to this amazing love that includes everything very much speaks to my heart. And that's very much my, my path. My, my spiritual path is very devotional. It's all about falling in love with the divine. That's is so interesting to me. I just want to take this unexpected turn with one further question or two, uh, because I remember being shocked having read Kafka and then coming across a, a passage of his where he talks about, I wish I had it in front of me, um, this sort of master of what we thought of as despair and existential gloom and everything has this fabulous passage about essentially seeing the sacred and, and, and letting it come to you and, and seeing the divine in every step you take in your walk to the village or something. I, I just remember thinking, Kafka said that? And then you came across um, you know, what you just said about Dostoevsky. And in researching American Veda, I came upon Tolstoy's late, I think, late life um, spirituality and his uh, attraction to uh, the work of Swami Vivekananda and uh, other you know, Indian the connection. And I, I was astonished by that. And uh, so, I, you know, I understand, you know, how that uh, discovery can work. Um, anything else you'd like to say about the uh, Russians and the, the literature? Well, I guess not about the, I, I guess I won't, I guess it's, that's not the main thing I, I'd like to convey, I guess, is about the Russians is, I'm what what interests me today. I, st I still have stacks of my I still have a ton of those Russian books on my shelves, but I admit I don't I don't pick them up anymore. What interests me today is more what are the spiritual practices and perspectives that can keep us grounded because we are in a climate emergency. And I'm that's really where my energy is these days is um, how do I help myself? How do I help other people uh, find a way to stay inwardly alive because we're dealing with a world that is dying before our eyes the, you know the web of life is is unraveling that we we I, I can say more details about that but th that's like the big picture given that reality i'm very interested in how do we keep ourselves inwardly alive so we can rise to the occasion and find the courage and the spot and the uh, resolve um, and the commitment to do what we can to join hands with each other across differences. Like we need to, as a species, we, we have a big leap to do. Uh, 
Well, thank you for bringing us back to the main uh, topic here. I got sidetracked by Russian literature. Um, let's talk about that. Your, one of your current positions is missioner for creation care. What does that mean? What is a missioner? And uh, what is the mission of the missioner? Thank you. You know, I have the world's longest job title, so it makes sense that you didn't say all the titles that are involved. I, it's this kind of wonderful, it's turned into this very ecumenical job, which is, which is wonderful. I work for the UCC as well as for the Episcopal Church, uh, two dioceses. Um, the way it happened was I was in parish ministry in the Episcopal Church for 25 years. I was a, a climate activist on the side. And then finally, it got to the point where I was so anxious about the climate crisis. I was having insomnia and just feeling like I, can't, I need to, be, I really need to be turning my attention to this. This feels like my call. So I went to my bishop, Doug Fisher, Bishop of the Diocese of Western Massachusetts, and I asked if he could give me a job working for the diocese as missioner for creation care. I invented the title. Mm. In the Episcopal Church, this word missioner. Um, it's not missionary, which for some people, understandably, has a, has a burden of history, uh, a, a powerful negative meaning. So it's a missioner, which means you're someone on a mission. You are, you're out of the box. You're, you're not just inside the building. You're on the move. There's something you want to do. And um, as I envision it, my, my mission, I would... I, I want people to fall in love with life. I want them to fall in love, to realize that it is such a gift to be on this earth, this, this fragile, precious earth, where for, for all we know, that, that maybe there's life on other planets. I don't know anything about that. This life is so precious. How can we find ways to live, to, to mobilize, to meet the climate emergency and the, the emergency around biodiversity and uh, species extinction? Can we find a way to love the earth, uh, to love it as God loves it, which is how I interpret the, the word dominion, mm. uh, to love the earth as God loves it. So anyway, I went to the bishop and said, any chance you could give me this job? And he said, um, yes, if we can find the money. And then just then someone was had in the diocese had just sold his stock in pipelines and wanted to donate the money to the Episcopal Diocese of Western Mass to do something around the climate crisis. And that became the seed money for my job. Um, mm -hmm. And then it quickly, the job quickly went ecumenical. And, um, and so what are, have you been doing to further the mission? And is it limited to Western Mass? It's not limited. I, well, I'm actually now working for the Diocese of Massachusetts as well, and also for the Southern New England Conference of the UCC. Um, I started a website right as soon as I started the job, which I started in 2014. So the website is revivingcreation.org. It, it has blog posts, sermon. I travel around, I preach, um, I give talks, I lead retreats. Um, with COVID and the pandemic, there were several weeks of just like, oh my gosh, I, I had this whole travel schedule planned last year and it all was, um, but then things just shifted online. So, so I'm as busy or busier than ever, just trying to convey a message of, of 
urgency um, and of hope, defined not as kind of pie in the sky, but as the kind of hope that, is, that we build together as we take action. So it's, it's a lot about communication. How has it been received? And has there been any, uh, I wouldn't say backlash, but resistance uh, within the church or you know, outside the boundaries of uh, liberal Massachusetts to, to what you're doing? Um, I, I, I do get resistance and pushback from time to time. I, I, I know other people who have experienced it much more powerfully than I have. Uh, you know, I've had people walk out of my sermons. I've had people march up to me at the end of a sermon and explain how God would never let humans destroy the earth. And, you know, just sort of di really different theological perspectives. Um, or, you know, the usual that climate change is a hoax, is not real. Um, but I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm really... I'm sort of of two minds. I really value uh, reaching across divides and trying to speak to the other side. But at the same time, I feel like I can't wait to persuade those people. I, in a way, I, I think my calling is more to speak to the people who are kind of um, overwhelmed, uh, paralyzed, who feel like it's too big for me. What can I possibly do? I want to encourage those folks. And I also want to be ministering to the folks who are on the front lines, very much being activists, and they are burned out. They're they're feeling, that, oh my gosh, what can I do? So, I I think those are. Jesus says, "Feed my sheep," and I think those are the people that I, I, I feel most drawn uh, to speak to and to, to nourish to give. But uh, how do you deal with those uh, other interpretate theological positions, mm -hmm. either of, oh. It's not our responsibility, you know. The the condition of the earth is in God's hands, and why why do we have to get involved? Uh, or uh, that um, it can't possibly God could, wouldn't let this happen, so it must therefore not be as urgent as you say. Or I don't know if you run into this, but. Uh, you would in other parts of the country where, you know, our job is to use, you know, the, the stuff of the earth for our uh, pleasure and uh, enjoyment and comfort. How do you deal with it? How, because we're all dealing with uh, polarizations of one kind or another and uh, political and all the rest. So you, as a uh, a woman of God, you must have ways of doing these things that are more, uh, shall we say, um, spiritually grounded than some of the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know, Phil. <laughs> um, the way I tell the story is that God so loved the world. And, that, you know, that's that famous line from the gospel of John, God, so, you'll see, you'll see people with big banners at football games. God, so John 2, 16, God's, or I'm not even sure I've got the verse right. So I've already lost credibility with some folks. God so loved the world that God gave, gave his only son. That, uh, and the, the word world means, means cosmos. God so loves the cosmos. 
So to know that we are in relationship with a God of love who gives everything for us, who wants us to thrive. And one of my favorite mission statements from Jesus is uh, the Gospel of John, John 10, 10, where Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. So to envision this God who loved creation into being, who um, so wants us to understand how loved we are and how loved this whole thing is that God sends God's son, that, you know, to use the traditional language is the incarnation, um, to show us a path, a path of life. And the path that Jesus shows us is one of self-giving love. It's one of caring for the, you know, the last, the least, and the lost, as they often say. Um, anyway, I, and then I don't want to kind of walk through all the scriptures, but there are lots of passages which show that it's not about God, uh, Jesus coming to save just humanity, but it affects the whole cosmos. It's a redemption of the whole world. So one of my heroes is, is Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who says that um, the supreme work of Jesus Christ is the reconciliation of humanity to each other and to God and to the whole rest of creation. That's the supreme work. So when I do what I can to, to care for the earth, I feel I, I'm, that's, I'm participating in the great work. And Jesus. how do people who initially um, are reactive and in, in disagreement or maybe even upset with you for taking this stand, how do they respond when you uh, return the argument that way? And follow up question, when you're called upon to cite evidence and facts and scientific, do they respond to that? Um, how do people respond? Uh, it, it, it sort of depends what the relationship is. And, we, and I, I, in the past, when I first started in this, I would get into long email exchanges. And then I finally realized, you know what, that's a rabbit hole. There's no, there's, there's not really a dialogue going on. We're, and so I had to say, thank you, but I need to turn my attention elsewhere. Um, what was your second question? Um, <laughs> it has to do with evidence. Evidence. If oh my God. Don't get it. If, 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 I, if I start, if we start doing fact, throwing facts at each other, it, it goes nowhere. Someone will say, oh, well, what about, you know, on the, 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 the coast of such and such a coast, there's actually more ice. There, so how do you explain that? So what I say is, look, I'm not a scientist. I am trusting, I am trusting scientists. I'm trusting all the national academies around the world. I'm trusting the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of, which, of the United Nations, which brings together all the reputable peer-reviewed science I'm going to go with what the scientists say. And if 97% or 98% or whatever it is of peer-reviewed climate scientists say that human activity is largely responsible for the crisis now of global warming, of climate change, I'm going to believe them. And then my job as a person of faith is how do I help mobilize my community to rise to the occasion? You know, if, if 
97% of engineers said that the plane I was about to step on was going to crash. There is like no way I'd want to go with the 1% who say there's not a problem with this airplane. I'd say, thank you. I'm not, get, I'm not doing it. Um, so getting into the weeds around science is um, not long ago, uh, Richard Rohr, who was a guest on our program in the past, uh, published one of your essays. Um, and I, I started reading it and I was struck by the uh, first sentence. And I'm going to read it and ask you what it means. You wrote, in times like these, our prayer may need to be expressive and embodied, visceral and vocal. Uh, later in the same essay, you acknowledge that prayer doesn't have to be that way, <laughs> but you, you did open with that. And I'm curious why you did and what you mean by that. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for note. I was so thrilled when Richard Ford used it. It's an excerpt from my chapter in, in Rooted and Rising. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was touched that he was willing to excerpt it. Um, yeah, I... I think there's so many ways to pray, and I value contemplative prayer deeply. That the, the silencing, quieting the mind, and finding a way to sort of drop down below the churn of thoughts into a deep place of of deep peace. But I am someone who also needs to move my body to express. I value music and art and all the expressive. So the story I tell in the chapter is the story of going outside to sing, sing to the trees. Just I, I was heartbroken that this whole woods behind our home was being cut down. And I um, finally had to just go outside and sing, sing to the trees, sing my shame, sing my grief, sing my rage, sing my love, sing my resolve. Um, and I guess that's an example of, of what I mean about staying inwardly alive. like. There are times we need to dance our prayer or pull out the drums and start drumming uh, to, to let ourselves express what we're feeling, uh, share it with God. We're, what makes it prayer is, no, is knowing that we're not alone. Mm. We are expressing ourselves in relationship to this love that will never let us go. So that love says, bring it on, you know, what's going on for you? Tell me the truth. I grew up being very polite, like in the Episcopal church I grew up with, everyone sat up straight and, and was nice. And this, this is a whole nother way of understanding the divine. God does not care about being you being nice or being just good. God wants to hear from the real you. What's really going on? No, with the exception of the African-American church and, and the Pentecostals and all that, uh, Western Christianity is not known for expressing unless, you know, Bach is considered expressive. But there you we're usually just listening. And, uh, and um, how do, do people respond well? Do you ever do that? Do you ever encourage a congregation to go outside? Because you say you, you take it to prayer outside. And this expanded definition of prayer uh, as, you know, outside of the boundaries of the uh, prayer book. <laughs> um, 
do people respond well to that opportunity to to think of connecting to the divine in other ways yeah they they certainly do and you know the the, the joke about the episcopalians traditionally is that we are the frozen chosen <laughs> so so thank goodness i think we're starting to melt you know in a in a good way in a good way so often often on my retreats um even though I've, I've figured out how to do it on Zoom, I will send people outside with instructions about ways to pray in relationship with the natural world. And with COVID, a lot of worship services are now being held outdoors, which yeah. has its own wisdom. It's, it's sort of spirit opportunities opening up of people beginning to experience what is this cathedral <laughs> that we inhabit uh, is not, the divine present here too. Uh, so yes, I, I do see that as part of the emerging church of what we're being invited into. Maybe the, there'll be redesigns of churches to allow more of the outside in. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I went to uh, visit a, a Frank Lloyd Wright design little chapel in Southern California and it was built in to a wooded area with a lot of glass for that reason. And I thought, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So tell us, uh, Margaret, in the uh, time we have remaining, what would you have us do? What would, um, how, how can we, uh, and the, the audience for our podcast uh, come from many, many different traditions, or no tradition, but they're, they value, they know that spirit matters as it were, and uh, they're spiritual people. What would you have us do, uh, those of us who care about the planet and are concerned about climate change, in the context of spirituality, what are some of the things you would have us do? Mm. Um, I've kind of, divided it up into four categories of pray, learn, act, and advocate. Um, so actually in the, in the website of the Episcopal Diocese of Western Massachusetts, we have a little section on creation care, and then there, there we, there's sort of material about pray, learn, act, and advocate. So pray would be things like going outdoors, uh, having a contemplative walk. Uh, very, it's about consciously renewing or experiencing for the first time a conscious living relationship with the natural world, understanding that the divine wants to encounter you. <laughs> we we co-evolve with the rest of the natural world and we are so separate from it. So part of the healing that needs to happen is to, to learn to discover God in, in nature. God writes the Bible in two the gospel comes in two books, the book of the Bible and the book of nature. That's both Augustine and Martin Luther would tell us we can trust the natural world to convey the power of God. So finding ways to pray. Um, with preaching traditions, I'm encouraging preachers, please preachers, preach about the climate crisis and help folks in the pew understand this is a spiritual and moral issue. So pray, learn. Uh, there's so much to learn. Um, just to learn some basic science about climate crisis, uh, to learn some good theology so you're equipped to 
understand how your tradition connects with the natural world. ACT is all the things we can do personally and in our household. It's everything from eating a plant-based diet or at least moving toward a plant-based diet to trying to get off fossil fuels in every way you can, if you, if you can to afford, afford solar panels and electrify everything, plant a garden, get, get plant, plant a community garden, share food, those are all under ACT, and advocate. Um, because the crisis is so great and moving so quickly, we can't settle for just individual acts. It's wonderful to feel morally pure, but we can't, <laughs> we can't get lost in our own individual moral purity. It's also about advocating. We need to change policies and build a movement. So I, I say thank God for Sunrise Movement. Thank God for... Um, William Barber and the People's uh, Poor People's Campaign, thank God for 350.org. The list goes on. Extinction Rebellion, the Indigenous Rights Movement. Right now there's a big protest going on against Line 3 in Minnesota. It's, it's all about Indigenous rights and about the sacredness of the land and the waters. So find, finding a way into the larger movement, I would encourage all people of faith to find some way to connect. How do you balance, you, you mentioned hope before. So let's, uh, for my, my, our last consideration here, talk a little bit about hope and how do you balance uh, seeing the, the reality of the crisis for what it is without um, descending into hopelessness or despair? Where do you find hope? How do you define hope? And what hope can you leave us with? Um, this is why prayer is so important. I, the way it works for me is if I'm feeling hopelessness and despair, if I'm feeling grief, if I'm feeling rage, I bring it into prayer. I have to keep bringing into, into prayer, bringing it into the presence of the one who loves us utterly and who wants us to choose life. Um, I think there are two kinds of hope. One is a very passive kind of hope where you say, you know, I hope, I hope my baseball team wins, or I hope tomorrow is a sunny day. And it's, it's kind of hoping from the sidelines where I get to be a bystander and just kind of hope, you know, I hope good stuff, but I don't have to do anything. And then there's active hope, which is, um, the kind of hope where you know what kind of future you want. You know you want a safe, beautiful, sustainable world where your children can thrive. Like, you know that's what you want. So hope is about saying, I want to bring that world into being. What can I do today to live into that purpose? Um, there's an environmental environmentalist named David Orr who says, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. <laughs> That's active hope. Well, up the road from where you live, I because I lived there once myself, is uh, Emily Dickinson's home. And she's the one who said, hope is the thing with feathers. I've never understood what that meant. Maybe you can tell us. I don't know. I can't remember the whole poem, how it goes. Um, <laughs> But it's it's singing. It's it's this little bird that will not stop singing. So we want to cultivate that kind of hope. And when someone loses hope, that means uh, they need support. 
and they need to cry and they need to rage, they need to dance or <laughs> make music. Um, and you know, we don't know if we don't know if we're going to be successful. We don't know if we're going to be able to save. Uh, certainly, don't know if we're going to be able to save civilization, so-called. And we uh, we've already lost. You know, in the last fifty years, we've lost more than sixty percent of the populations of wild animals on this planet. So we don't know, and we don't know if we're going to be able to limit CO two the temperature to to nothing more than two degrees rise. We don't know, but we can fight for what we love. And we know that every degree of temperature rise matters. We know that every tenth of a degree of temperature rise matters. Um, so at the end, it's about being faithful to who we are. If we are created in love and for love, then that's what we're going to be. That's who we want to be until the day we die, whether we are successful or not. Margaret, thanks so much for being with us. Um, and for the work you do, and may it continue, and may you be blessed in it. Listeners, uh, you can learn more about Margaret Bullock Jonas, Reverend Mar Margaret Bullock Jonas, at her uh, website. Um, tell us the website again. Uh, it's revivingcreation.org. Revivingcreation.org. Well, all this will be posted. And uh, also, listeners, viewers, please remember to support us at Spirit Matters. Your uh, financial help helps us uh, continue with this. Please, if you're listening uh, for the first time, go to our archive. We have a few hundred uh, interviews with wonderful people. And um, we want to keep it free. Hence, we ask for contributions, not donations, because we're not a, a nonprofit officially, but for that. And please subscribe. You can either get the audio on your phone or you can subscribe to our YouTube channel so you could see our um, guests as well as hear them. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you did and tell your friends about us and keep in touch with us. Let us know what you think and uh, make suggestions about uh, guests we can invite on for the future. So thanks for listening. Thanks again, Margaret, for being with us and we'll see you all next time.